Hey everybody, welcome to Geeky Dads, talk about geeky things. I'm JJ Johnson, and joining me back on the show today is David Wright. David is a fantasy author. He is the author of Galahad's Doom. Did I say that right, Dave? That's right. That's exactly right. All right, now that yes, is... Uh, a- Go ahead. It's uh, uh, I'm really excited about it. It's a, it's a trilogy, and the third book is almost out. I expect it to come out in April. I've been working with the cover artist, and I've seen the cover and it is amazing. Uh, it is it is a uh, Christian-themed fantasy uh, series, very much in the vein of the Lord of the Rings. Anybody, you don't even, you don't have to uh, you don't have to be a believer. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy this series. If you just love Lord of the Rings or any fantasy like that, uh, Tolkien was definitely an, a clear influence on me and on my writing. And I'm very, I'm just super pleased with how the series turned out. I'm excited to be able to share it with everybody. So on galahadsdoom.com. Nice, nice. And that is a perfect segue to what we are going to be discussing tonight because we are specifically going to be discussing one of the most challenging books I have ever read. And that is The Silmarillion by, obviously, Tolkien. So. Yeah. All right, man. So, all right, let's just start off. What? Um, when did you first discover Middle Earth? Let's just start there. Well, let's see. I must have probably, I must have been, I, I know that my first taste of it was the Rankin and Bass animated special of The Hobbit. And I remember the Rankin and Bass animated special of the return of the king when it first aired so whenever that was okay it seems like my conscious memory starts around 1980 when i was in fourth grade i don't exactly know how old those animated specials are but i do remember clearly watching those i'm not talking about the ralph basky lord of the rings animated movie i didn't see that till much later but the rankin and bass stuff i saw as a kid and it piqued my interest i didn't fully understand it but i was interested in it And then uh, probably it must have been fifth or sixth grade around 1982, 83. I, uh, I attempted my first read of the Lord of the Rings and I, I understood it enough to know that I liked it, but it was too much for me. I did not make it through the Lord of the Rings as a fifth grader, but I revisited it a couple years later and of course fell in love with it. Nice, nice. Now, my first introduction, and I'm trying, I got the, I, I know the cover because I got a poster of it, is the, you know, the animated The Hobbit with, um, obviously, Warner Brothers put it out. It was the wizard in the background, the little hobbit sitting on a pile of gold, standing on a pile of gold. I'm trying to remember which one that was, but that was my first introduction. I had to be, this happy. I had to be young. I was probably 11, 12 years old, 10 or 11, around that time. And then my grandmother had a copy of The Hobbit, but it, was, it wasn't it was like the actual novel. It was more like the children's version, you know. And she read that to us as like a bedtime story. And so that was really sort of my my first introduction to anything Tolkien. And at that point, I didn't even know who Tolkien was. I mean, it was just, sure. yeah, it's just, here's The Hobbit. My grandmother loved the story, and I watched the anime series, and that was sort of my first introduction. Um, 
Yeah, see, I was uh, when I gave up on Lord of the Rings in fifth grade, I moved over to the Chronicles of Narnia, and I absolutely absorbed all of those. And then by the time I was in seventh and eighth grade, not only did I read the Lord of the Rings, but I also read Le Mort d'Arthur by Sir Thomas Mallory, <laughs> just for fun. You know, it's the it's the definitive collection of King Arthur legends that was collected in the Middle Ages or something. And um, I had found a copy of it, and that's how much of a reader was I, was I was at that time. I was able to get into it. So it was right around that period in the early 80s where I just really kind of went all in on fantasy and just fell in love with all this stuff. Nice, nice. Now, I'm a little bit different because after that, obviously, I went into the, like you, I went into the Chronicles of Narnia um, direction. But my first introduction to fantasy outside of Chronicles of Narnia and then, of course, The Hobbit, when I became a teenager, it was the Belgariad by David Eddings and The Will of Time by Robert Jordan. Of course, those were my teenager years. So... I didn't, I sort of bypassed Tolkien and then I started coming back to Tolkien uh, sort of in college around probably 99, 2000. And that's just because the films were coming out. And I'm going to be honest with you. And I know there's a lot of Tolkien fans that are going to get mad at me for what I'm about to say. I couldn't do it. I, I tried reading it and it just, for some reason, it wasn't connecting with me as a, as a college student. And so I, I tried coming back. I went to just reading the regular Hobbit and I, I did it. But as far as the Lord of the Rings trilogy, I struggled. And so I ended up watching the films long before I ever tried to read the series again. And so that's kind of my history with Tolkien in that way. So, um, when did you first read the Silmarillion? Um, let's see. We're in March right now. <laughs> I first read it in January. <laughs> yeah. uh, I do not have a long history with this book other than looking at it on the shelves and bookstores and being utterly intimidated by it. That was the extent of my history. Uh, I finally made the decision that I was going to do it. And, um, and so I just I just read it earlier this year for the very first time. Uh, I decided to take a different approach than what I usually do, because as we'll get into, this is unlike any other book. This is not a normal novel by any means. Um, I decided that spoilers were welcome, and I did a lot of research. I absorbed Wikipedia and YouTube and podcasts, and I learned all I could about the first age and everything that's covered in the Silmarillion. And I just, because this wasn't about enjoying a story. This was about understanding the legendarium. And I just wanted to get it all straight. So I, after filling my head with all this knowledge, then I tackled the book and I found that that helped me because I absolutely did get through the book and did not have a hard time with it. I, I kind of took the same approach and folks, I will admit I did not read this until this year, till February. <laughs> <laughs> now i've had a copy for a long time and i have tried to open it up and i would get five six pages into it and i'd be like i have no idea what the heck i just read <laughs> and then i saw you were reading this and you know we've been discussing you coming back on the show you have been on our avengers show where we talked all about avengers comics and yeah. i was like okay this would be a perfect discussion but I actually have to read it. 
<laughs> and I figured, you know, somebody who writes in the speculative market, I, I write more of the middle grade, and then I've, I've dabbled in horror as well. But as somebody who has written in the speculative market, I was like, you know, I, I set a goal back in like November, December. One of my uh, one of my friends I just had on the show, uh, Becky Dean, is a big Tolkien reader. And, you know, she had, you know, made a comment, you know, we're in a writing group together about how I needed to read Tolkien. And I, I, I just like I, I was intimidated by it. So I decided to approach this as if I'm sort of studying the history of fantasy in a way. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it, I kind of came at it from the approach of I want to study it like it's literature, sort of like I read when I read the Iliad or the Odyssey or some of those mm -hmm. things in college. And I decided, you know, same thing. Spoilers are welcome. So I found the Tolkien Road, Road podcast, and they sort of have a commentary that gives you an overview of every chapter. Right. And then I found the Dancing Pony or whatever you call it podcast. The, the, the Prancing Pony podcast. Correct. And man, they go into, I couldn't listen to every episode because they... <laughs> They go deep into it in many episodes, and I'm like, okay, I'm enjoying what I'm hearing, but they helped me get off the ground and going by listening just to the first four or five episodes, and that really helps, and honestly, you know, when you first read it, it's like reading the book of numbers or something like that. It is, yes. it is hard, but as I approached it with different mindset and as i was reading commentary before i went into each chapter i sort of like i had a a very thorough understanding of what was happening there was a lot i sure i'm sure i missed but uh this thing is rich and we're going to get into that a little bit yeah uh you're right the prancing pony podcast definitely helped me as a matter of fact i only read one chapter at a time and when i'd finish it i would stop and I wouldn't read the next chapter until I'd listened to the corresponding episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. So we're giving them lots of mentions for absolutely free. Uh, the other the other resource that that helped me a lot is a tremendous YouTube channel. It's called The Nerd of the Rings. You, you should He has a series of videos on the history of Middle-earth focusing on individual characters. Of course, there's a lot spent on the First Age and that Silmarillion era. Between those two, The Nerd of the Rings and Prancing Pony, I was able to... Uh, I was able to get through all of this, but you're exactly right. You know, I thought you were going to say you were approaching this as a history of Middle Earth, which of course it literally is, but you took it a step further and said a history of fantasy. That's interesting because, you know, I think that Tolkien eventually, uh, essentially invented a genre with, with this Middle Earth legendarium. You know, the, the, everybody that's written in fantasy since him uh, has been influenced by him, whether they realize it or not, you know, the whole idea with how he, Handles dwarves and elves. They were very different before Tolkien, right? It was all very Disney and Grim and Brothers Grimm type approaches to elves and dwarves. And he changed all that and invented this high fantasy genre. And I'm fascinated by that. But um, you're right, as far as this being a very dense book and, and unlike any other, no one should think of this as a novel. Okay. If if someone opens this up thinking they're gonna read a novel, they're gonna be put off by it. The the conceit you should consider is that this is like an in-universe history text okay this is like the school book that aragorn may have read while growing up in rivendell here is you say it reads like the book of numbers 
the the very first chapter reads like the book of Genesis. It starts with yes. nothing less than the very creation of the universe. Um, and, it, and it goes all the way through it. And, if, and it reads like a history book. It reads like a history text. And if, if you just take that approach, uh, I mean, if you, if you understand that that's the, the construct of it, then you're not going to be put off by it. Um, I wish, I, I, you know, I feel like this is like, this is like uh, about 20 different novels in concentrated form. And I, and I wish Tolkien could have lived long enough to really unpack everything that's in here. We could have gotten a whole series of incredible books. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the things, I guess, I mean, I mean, my feelings on the book have changed uh, since reading it. I, I, how about you? Definitely. Um, I don't, honestly, um, it was so easy for me this time. I wondered why I was so uh, intimidated by it for so long. Um, I'm excited by it now. I love everything that I read. I'm, e it, it's, I'm eager to read it again just because um, I know there's so much I either missed or, or has I was trying to absorb so much in, in such a short amount of time that you can't possibly keep it all in your head. You know, this, this should be read probably in small bits just to focus on one part at a time. So you can understand everything that's being presented. You can kind of internalize it all. Yeah. So, okay. So the way this is broken up folks is you have sort of two sets of prologues that are happening here. And folks, for you token purist out there i will butcher every single one of these names i guarantee you but you have the is it called the end and okay uh i can get it hold on the adelindale yes yes now that that sort of talks about that's very short it sort of talks about the creation and things like that and then the very next one is the valent yes. and so you have these two separate prologues before you even get into the story right. and you know, at first you would sit there and think, Oh, I can just bypass these. No, do not bypass these. These are rich. And some They're of the amazing. Most, oh, some of the most beautiful writing I've ever read Absolutely. is in there. Yeah. And, and then you get into the actual similar, uh, I, I, you know, what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, that runs for about, I'd say 24 chapters. And then you close out with uh, the Akal. Oh, how do you? I'm going to say a Akalabeth. Akalabeth. Yes, Akalabeth, and then of course the Rings of Power in the Third Age. Now this isn't necessarily, folks, the Rings of Power that is the TV show. A little different. Um, <laughs> so, so that's sort of how it's broken up. You have two prologues. You have 24 chapters of the regular story. And then you break off and you have sort of two epilogues in a way. So that's that's kind of how this is broken out. Yeah, the, the Anilindale is the creation of the universe. And the Valaquinta basically is a roster call of all these different um, uh, Maya, which is a, it's an order of being below the one god who is uh, Iluvatar, but above the elves. And of course, the elves are... Uh, just above man. So what's interesting about this is that he's create. it's easy. It's, it's tempting and it's easy to draw analogs between his uh, cosmology and, and the, uh, the Christian faith. You know, when you talk about the one God creating the universe, um, but it's not a one for one. And in he, he famously, you know, rejected any idea of allegory 
this is a unique creation of his invention. But what's interesting to me is you can it's easy to see where there's where he made room for both uh, the one Judeo-Christian monotheistic God and at the same time a a race of beings that were similar to the Greek gods or the pantheons of, of Greek gods or Norse gods and things like that. And um, I, f- I found that interesting. Then the Quintus Silmarillion is the, is the body of the book, and it's the history of the elves and the history of the Silmarils throughout the first age. What, the, what you call the first prologue there, the, uh, Akalabeth, that's, that's, um, that deals with the second age, and that's where you get everything about Numenor. And yeah. then the Rings of Power, um, it deals with stuff that was happening during the Lord of the Rings, but also, and um, well, everything in the third age. So Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, but some of it is it's from a different perspective a little bit, you know, than what we read in the novel. And so it kind of gives it kind of fills in some gaps and some background. So this if, if any any real Lord of the Rings fan, you have to read this book. And I understand why if you haven't, I understand why. But I promise you, it's not that bad. Um, there are plenty of resources out there now to help you get through it. And it is so worth it. It is so full of amazing writing amazing prose and just incredible stories yes and then of course you know that middle part of the book those 24 chapters you know you have chapter one and two which is sort of continues it's 24 chapters the first two chapters are sort of continuing the creation and then the war with melker has really started and he is sort of the main antagonist and i mean he is Sauron's mentor and I got some thoughts on that I'm going to get to here in a minute and then the chapters like uh, three and five that's sort of the coming of the elves and you also have the creation of the of the dwarves in there and then six through nine is sort of you know the fall of the Noldor because you get these three sets of elves basically um, clans races whatever you want to call them and that's sort of the start of the the Cimmerils. And then, of course, then it's like you get 13 chapters of just this incredible war that's happening. And then, of course, the last chapter sort of ends with the First Age and Morgoth's defeat, um, which Morgoth is the name that, uh, oh, is it Fenway? Fenway gave Melkor. Um, right. So that's for- that's right. Uh, Manway is basically he's the head Maya, right? He he's the one closest that knows best the will of Iluvatar. He's basically the Zeus figure, um, and Melkor is basically the Lucifer figure. He's the he's the uh, the the basically like the fallen angel who becomes the Satan figure, and and is later and later goes by the name Morgoth. So Melkor and Morgoth are the same same entity. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, okay, so let's get into some of our favorite parts because there's three specific favorite parts that I have. And I want to hear what some of your favorite parts of this entire book are. Folks, we cannot even begin to cover everything. Uh, No. So go listen to some of those other podcasts that we uh, mentioned. And you could probably spend about six to nine months in this and still not get everything out that is in this as packed in this book. So that's true. You asked for my favorite parts. I've got five that immediately jumped to mind. 
that first chapter, the creation of the universe, is is just breathtaking. It's awesome. Um, the 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 story of the creation of the dwarves by by the Maya Aule and how um, he did that outside of the will of Iluvatar and how uh, Iluvatar brings him into his presence and talks to him and admonishes him and, and how all that is handled, the, the, the pride of Aule and the folly of Aule and what happens to the dwarves um, um, as a result of them, of them being created, uh, kind of the unauthorized creation of this intelligent race. Um, how, th- that exchange between Iluvatar and Aule after, after the, this has been discovered uh, to me, just resonated so strongly. I absolutely, it was just beautiful stuff. Um, and then there, there, now I'll skip to the end to say uh, my fifth one was everything about Numenor. I'm fascinated by the idea of Numenor. The Rings of Power TV show has me more interested in it. And I want to learn more in the Akelabeth here in this book is um, a large portion of what we know about Numenor. So I was very interested in all that. Um, but there are two of the largest chapters in the body of the Silmarillion that the, the Baron and Luthien story, and then the, the Turin and uh, uh, the, the Turin Turinbar story, which is also, I believe is known as the children of Huron. Both of those stories were just incredible. They blew me away. I had heard the names Baron and Luthien a lot and you hear them referenced in the Lord of the Rings and in the Lord of the Rings movies but I didn't know their story. I didn't know what type of characters they were, or what happens to them. Oh my goodness. It is incredible. Like it's an awesome story that needs to be a movie. Um, yes. And they basically go up against Morgoth, you know, directly uh, and on a quest for one of the Silmarils, which is one of these, uh, we don't, we probably don't even want to get all into it, but it's, it's one of these uh, most prized treasures that it's similar to the rings of power in the sense that they, that they um also that they basically represent temptation and pride uh and they and they tempt all the characters who come into contact with it um and then the and then the children of Huron story uh i had no idea i had seen that they kind of spun that out into a standalone book you can get called the children of Huron. it's here in the silmarillion under the name of it's called of turin turnbars where you find that story and um and i was shocked i mean it's an epic story and it's a tragedy and it's got a, it's got a shocking twist to it, and it's heartbreaking. And it, but it's just it's excellent writing, it's an excellent story. And I would put that in Baron and Luthien as two of my favorite parts of this book. I was telling a friend as I was as I was reading through it, I said, I, I, I you know, I just I felt like my life is now divided into pre Baron and Luthien and post Baron and Luthien. That that story just was really powerful to me. Yeah. You know, you brought up uh, one of my favorite chapters, and that is uh, chapter two on the marriage of Aliye and Yavana. And you, you talked about him creating the dwarves. And yeah. that, was, that was sort of eye-opening because the comparison and the contrast uh, between him, Aye, and Melkor yeah. is is very evident in this chapter because yes. one of the things that he says, I mean, we talk about the pride and he, Aye is, he is the, am I saying that right? First I think it's, I think it's Aule. Okay. Aule. 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 
L.A. <laughs> now you got me saying it wrong. <laughs> this is Al Alway. 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 Okay, there we go. So Alway <laughs> and Melkor. Um, so he uh, openly admits. That, I mean, there's there's pride here. Obviously, he is the creation Manway, or not Manway, but uh, uh, what are they called? All all the um, uh, not they're not the God. The, yeah, the, the Maya. Maya. He yeah. is he is the sort of the the crafty Maya that there is, and of course, so he creates the doors. But the thing that's interesting about this is his response after Iluvatar kind of scolds him in a way, and he says, he answers and he says, "I did not desire such lordship. I desired things other than I am to love and to teach them." And right there, you see the difference between him and Melkor and the fact that the humility and the guilt that ultimately happens, which is what really allows uh, pretty much the, the dwarves to continue on as, as a race, because, um, you know, Melkor was obviously, he would have been more antagonistic response and he was many times, but he just, you know, and so I always thought that that was interesting, the comparison and contrast right there between Melkor and him in that particular chapter. And that was one of my favorite chapters. Yeah. And and first of all, let me correct myself before the Tolkien fans out there freak out. Uh, these these the big names, OK, are the Valar. Are the, the Valar are basically the equivalent of the Greek gods and the Maya are the kind of the the one level below them. So um Aule and Manwe and all these people, they are the Valar. Um, and you're exactly right. Melkor, um, Melkor sought to corrupt Iluvatar's creation. And while, while Aule did mess up by creating the dwarves, he shouldn't have done that. Um, he, he, con he confesses. And he also says, look, I was, um, I, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically he told Iluvatar, you know, this, I, this was me. Think of me as like a, a child walking in his father's shoes. Uh, out of my love for you, I tried to do. I, you know, I tried to imitate you, and 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 like you say, create something other than me that I could love and teach. Um, and so it was that it was that humility that um, that was the difference. And um, the dwarves had the dwarves he created had to be put to rest because they weren't and and like they had to like lay dormant under the ground. Until um, until after the first uh, children of Iluvatar, which are the elves. So um, yeah, fascinating, uh, a, f a fascinating cosmology, a history to the universe, and 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 also you know spiritual lessons um, of and kind of you know all of this just kind of resonates at a, at a at a at a deep level. This is unlike any other book I've read. Yeah, absolutely, and you know. You know, thanks for uh, clearing that up about the Valar and the and the, the Maya. Um, but that brings me into the Valaquente, which was my next favorite part. And this is where we're introduced to to Melkor, the enemy. Um, and one of the things that you know fascinated me about this is he says, I, "I'm I'm sitting here reading this, and it says for the Maya, many were drawn to his splendor." And they're talking about Melkor here in the days of his greatness and remained in that allegiance down into darkness. And this was, this absolutely shocked me 
among those of his servants that have the names, the greatest was that spirit whom the Eldar, who are also called the Elves, called Sauron. And I just sat there when I first read that, and that's right at the beginning in that second prologue, the Valaquente. I was just like, oh my gosh. So he was, you know, a, ma- a Maya of Alie, or however you say it <laughs> with oh. our pronunciation. Yes. A, yes. Who, who is the one that crafts. Right. And we see the reputation of Sauron as being this one that crafts rings and things like that. And I just sat there and I thought I was blown away. I had to reread that because I was like, wait a minute. So it, to me, it opened my eyes to, to Sauron a little bit and kind of gave me, and then I was kind of like, wait a minute, Sauron's the apprentice here, which, you know, it's, he's like the Lord Vader uh, to Palpatine. I'm like, right. <laughs> I, it, it blew my mind because I never thought I always, you always think of Sauron. If you're, if you're not familiar with the Silmarillion, you know, and you just know the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, you always think of Sauron as the big evil dude. But there's one even more evil than uh, right. than Sauron. Right. That's right. And and Ali wasn't the evil one, but he was the craftsman. I think uh, Sauron did start under him, but then with, um, and then he was drawn later toward the corruption of Melkor. Exactly. Um, yeah, uh, I know. So so uh, it, it's, it's helpful to think of a, of, Iluvatar as God, to think of the Valar as like the Greek gods, and then think of the Maya as angels. And, yeah, yeah. And the elves are kind of a half step between angels and man. Um, and then dwarves are this side project over here that sh- they sh- that should never have existed, and the guy was out of line to create them. Um, so they become, and so because they were created in conflict with Iluvatar's will for the for elves being the first children, that's why. There's often conflict to you know between elves and dwarves throughout their history. So all that kind of stuff is pretty neat. Um, but yeah, Sauron is a Maya level. So um, we we find out that so is Gandalf, and so are the Balrogs. So it gives um, you know the, the the wizards of Middle Earth, the the Tolkien wizards, are um, a lot different than like you know D and D wizards. These are basically these aren't these aren't just somebody with a high intelligence who can study some spell books. These are another order of being entirely from the cosmos that have come down and are you know and living on the world. Right, right. And I think you know we have we were talking about the the different levels. You know, uh, you know the angel or the uh, the elves and man, and then you know the dwarves. And then we get the creation of the orcs. And I want to read this right here. Um, It says, of all those of the Quinde who came into the hands of Melkor, they were put in prison and by slow arts of cruelty were corrupted and enslaved. And thus did Melkor breed the hideous race of the orcs in envy and mockery of the elves, of whom they were afterwards the bitterest foes because he obviously blamed the elves and he says and then later on it says deep in their dark hearts the orcs load the master whom they served in fear the maker only of their misery and i sit there and i thought okay this 
is pure evil right here just happening. And the yeah. fact that they loathed him, but they served him in fear just goes to show exactly how evil Melkor really is. And it's it's sad and it's disturbing, but Tolkien does such a great job of setting up this evil uh, conflict within his world. Yeah, in fact, I'm sitting here thinking, is there a greater villain in all of literature? I just can't. I can't imagine. Tolkien's created just this enormous cosmic power of pure evil. Uh, it's 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 impressive and scary. Uh, and and interesting that the creation of the orcs, you know, Melkor um, did not create anything of his own. He can only create in mockery. He took what already existed in good and perverted it and corrupted it and twisted it and th and that's the only way he could he could create um not truly creating anything new himself so i, I find all that a very very interesting approach yeah which makes you wonder you know that's partially probably why he corrupted sauron who was serving over there with alia and uh who was crafting and creating these things because melkor could not do it himself and so it's kind of interesting to see that that twist as well yeah, that's good. Uh, of how limited he really was. Yeah. yeah. So um, I would um, I would say this also. I, I, I'm sorry. I guess I'm moving to a different part of the Silmarillion here. But Go ahead. Uh, the um, the one thing that's the trickiest to understand that I had the most trouble getting through is you really have to keep track of the different types of elves. You know, there's a very complicated history here of them branching off and different migrations and people settling different areas while others continue to migrate and they form different tribes and clans. And you really got to keep that straight and know who the key characters are in each of those areas. And you know, the, it, the Cimmerillion does come with a genealogy and it comes with a map. Those are essential. Every time you're dealing with um, family, you know, houses and things like that, Take the time to look at the charts, study them. You know they're they're in the book. They're all over the internet. You've you that's the part you got to keep straight. If you can keep all the different elves straight, you'll be fine. Yeah. And there were there were three specific sets. Um, and of course, if you watch, and I know there's some fan people out there that do not like the Ring of Power. I actually enjoyed it. I rewatched it last week when I was on vacation. And after reading the Silmarillion, it's it's kind of interesting to see how you know they, these three different sets of of, uh, of elves, um, and you get these funny side stories because one one hears a Valar singing and goes off, and uh, he misses the boat to uh, where's the where's the place they go to. Um, uh, that the Valar are at Valinor. Yes, he misses the vote to Valinor, and his 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 people get stuck there, and <laughs> and so you get all these little side stories like that that you're just kind of sitting there going, "What is going on?" But then you realize, in the larger scope of things, how Tolkien is setting up these different these three different sets of elves. Um, and just, it's fascinating. It's fascinating, the world building. This, I'll tell you this, anybody that is a fantasy author needs to immediately go and study this work because this will show you how to build your world in a unique way 
that I had never thought about. Well, I mean, his his world building is just so enormous and so in depth and so detailed it boggles the mind, right? He was a he was a linguist. Uh, he he wanted the, re- the only reason he wrote this legendarium, right? Wrote Cimmerillion, The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings, is that he, a- as an academic exercise, wa- uh, decided to invent a language, but he knew that language evolved over time. And so he just went about creating a history for this language he had invented. And so it starts from that angle. And then he layers in just thousands of years of history for this world. You know, this is all backstory. The Silmarillion was written first. It started like in 1917, but it never saw publication in his lifetime. It was all just him working on the world. You know, and so this was a very lived in world with a rich history, a dramatic history. That's all just backdrop for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings. Um, the amount of world building and the amount of thought and detail he put into world histories is just incredible. I mean, it, it there nobody comes close. Nobody in the fantasy genre comes close. Yeah, I absolutely have to agree with that. And, you know, some of the things like the Belrogs, you, you get an understanding of who they are. And, you know, I, you know, in, in Lord of the Rings, all I ever remember about the Royal Rog is the standoff with uh, Gandalf right there at the, um, you know, when they're in. Yes. And, you know, you know, he leaves the the fellowship at that point uh, for, for a little bit. And then the Belrogs are all through this, this story and, you know, they keep, they continue to show up and you realize that there's a whole lot more going on here with them. And man, I, I just, we could go on and on because we could go into the, uh, the Noldor and talk about that. So, I mean, there's just, they're all so over much. the place. Yeah. So it's so much, I mean, there, there are wars described in the Cimmerillion that have entire armies of Balrocks. <laughs> Exactly. It, it's, it's, it's just the, the scale uh, can boggle the mind sometimes. And, and the whole thing, the, 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 the history of the universe, the history of these elves, the, um, like I said, the Baron and Luthien and the children of Huron, those stories, they all just resonate with myth. They're, 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 they're mythic. They're almost fairy tale-ish. They, you just, um, it, I don't know how else, how else to describe it. It just um, is, it's just different. It's a different reading experience than anything I've ever read before. And like I said, this sense that you're, that, that, that you're uncovering some kind of artifact that describes a deep and ancient history that, that, that we've, that we've never seen before that we only see hinted at in Lord of the Rings. It's just an impressive amount of world buildings. I don't know how else to say it. Yeah. All right, well, sort of segue into, and we've talked a little bit about it because we've talked about some things that show up in The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings, but how do you think this really um, informs The Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit now that you've read the book and, you know, you've read read the the others and seen the films? How do you feel like it, let's separate those out. Let's kind of separate them out. Let's just go with how does, how does it inform the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings in your opinion? Well, um, everything, 
that's referenced in in the Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, everything that references history or references things that come before. You know, you, at first you just read them and you just kind of it just they just kind of go by you because they don't mean anything. You don't quite understand it, and you don't think much about it other than you get the sense that there's more to this world. You know, you just you don't know what that history is, but you understand that there is a history. And 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 again, you know, the Hobbit, the the I think Hobbit came out in the late 30s originally, first edition. The Lord of the Rings was published in the mid to late 50s. The Cimmerillion never saw print until 1977. So nobody understood these references. What nobody knew at the time was that it was all being written from a consistent source material that he had already developed. Well, he continued to revise it and develop it throughout his life, but but he had he had the major strokes figured out. And so the Cimmerillion comes out and kind of explains all this and unveils all this and unveils so much more that it just it blew everybody away. So um, things like the giant statues at the river, right? The, the, mm-hmm. the Argonoth. Um, we now know who those are images of, and we know who built those, those statues. Um, you hear references to the Numenor, the Numenorians. You hear references to the Dunedain. Um, all this comes from the Cimmerillion. Everything about uh, that we saw in the prologue of Fellowship of the Ring with the last alliance of, of, uh, elves and man and uh, Isildur defeating Sauron and taking the ring for himself and, and the, the blade of Narsil being shattered. All that is in the Silmarillion. Oh, you know, it, in, in the Akalabeth, that chapter that deals with the second age. Yeah. Um, and um, so it's, it's all there. Like, um, so, so to me, it, uh, the, the evidence of the Silmarillion material is seeded throughout the Hobbit and Lord of the Rings. And then once you read the Silmarillion, then all the dots connect and it all makes sense. And you get payoff after payoff and you're like, aha. Now, after having read Silmarillion, the real payoff is going to be reading or watching the Lord of the Rings all over again, especially reading it. Because then you're really going to catch all those little moments and references and name drops that never meant anything to you before. And it's all going to click together into one large work. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. I'm trying to recall back when Gandalf standing there on the bridge facing the Balrog and he says, I am the, uh, Oh, I forget the quote, but that the, is the re- of the flame imperishable. Yeah. That is in right there in the beginning. And I'm yes, like, <laughs> I sit there and I read that and I'm like, wait a minute. Yeah. I know that from somebody. And then I went and listened to the dancing pony, uh, you know, pony podcast, and I was like, yeah. and they talked about, it, and I'm like, oh, that's what that's. <laughs> that. And it's so, yeah, it it yeah. informs so much, and so I'm probably gonna read the Hobbit and and the trilogy, uh, probably late summer, early fall, and I'm looking forward to it really a lot now simply because of of what i have unpacked and and learned here i feel like we'll make the reading experience much more rich yes. now let's talk about ring of power and of course you know the peter jackson films um how do you what what first age elements are do you see show up 
and and I get it. The Silmarillion, uh, the Tolkien estate has never sold the film rights to it. They still own the rights, but elements do show up uh, throughout, you know, the film. So, what are some of the elements that you've discovered? Well, I do know that um, uh, I would say most of the elements from the Silmarillion that we see in the films are second age, you know, still from the Silmarillion, but from the second age, because all the stuff with Numenor and everything like that. Um, but as far as um, the, the first age stuff, like you say, mentions, you know, things like the flame imperishable, um, the fact, and think about this, Galadriel seems to, ha- it seems to have this otherworldly aura about her and she has all these magical powers, right? She's an elf and she has all this magic around her. And then you got Legolas, who's just a dude with a bow and arrow. He doesn't have any of that magic. Mm. Why is that? What's the, they're both elves. What's the difference? The Cimmerillion explains that. Like there's right. context for all that. Um, so, and the idea that what is a Balrog and how does Gandalf know him and why is there a history there and what's it doing at the bottom of this mine? You know, all these things come from the first age. The Witch King of Angmar, right? The, um, the, uh, the kind of the lead Nazgul that gets defeated at the end of Return of the King. There, there is a first age history to Angmar and to the Witch King. That's um, that, and it gets detailed. There's multiple wars that are waged involving him. So, um, those are the types of things that come up. Um, there's a, there's a scene. I, I, I have never watched the theatrical cut ever. Ever since the extended versions came out, I've never watched the theatrical cut again. <laughs> but if, so it's hard for me to keep it straight. But I think this may be in the extended cut only. There's a scene where Aragorn is singing in Elvish, and someone asks him, "What's he singing about?" And and he and he tell that it's about Baron and Luthien, about uh, a mortal man and an Elvish woman, and of course it's a parallel to Aragorn and Arwen, and he's singing the song about Baron and Luthien. Well, that's straight from the Silmarillion. That's straight up first age stuff. He gets referenced right there on screen in in, uh, in Lord of the Rings movies. So. Um, but to, so, you, you know, you watch that, it doesn't mean anything to you, but you, but you get the idea that it's hinting at a bigger history. Well, that, that, that history has been fully realized. It's, it's, it's been sitting here waiting for you to open it up and read it in the Silmarillion. Um, and the uh, Baron and Luthien story in particular is just incredible. Yeah, I'll, I'll rem- I will admit the first time I watched the, uh, uh, the Ring of Power, and, and folks, you got to understand my Tolkien knowledge. Uh, was very limited, you know, other than just, you know, what's out there. And she mentions Morgoth in, um, Gadriel, Gadriela does in, a in, um, Ring of Power. And I'm just sitting there, it just glazed over like, okay, okay who's that? I, it, it just never put two and two together. And then I'm sitting here reading the, the similar really. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's who that is. And, <laughs> oh, it's, is that's the new name that he was given because his real name is Melkor and he was given this name by this vengeful elf Fenway. And it's just like, you know, so, and then you get, you're introduced to her brothers and uh, you're introduced to her and, you know, okay. Now remind me, did she, was she one of the ones that saw the trees? Yes. She saw the light of, uh, of the trees of the light of Valinor. She's, she has seen the light herself and that's what, that's why she's different than Legolas. Legolas has never been to Valinor. He's never seen the light directly. Yes. Okay. So 
and folks, if you don't understand that, you know, the trees gave gave the light. And then Melkor, prior to prior to the sun and moon, there were the trees. Yeah. Yeah. There were the trees that gave the light before the sun and moon, and they were destroyed by Melkor, Morgoth, whatever you want to call him. And uh and, and during during the war. And so those those went out. I mean, you have so much and um who's the one that loves the fight? Uh the the Val the Valar that loves the uh, fight. Tolkis. Tolkis. <laughs> I love I love Tolkis. I just don't think we get enough of him. So Oh, I know. He reminded me of like Thor or Hercules from Marvel Comics. Oh yes, exactly. It, because he's he's sort of got that funny attitude towards him, but at the same time he just he's almost got this uh hey, I just want to go fight, you know, and you know, he's ready to go all the time and he's like being held back most of the time. So I, I, I loved him. He was one of my favorite. I wish I'd just gotten a little bit more of him. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, what's interesting is that initially middle earth was flat. The world was flat and Valinor, which is kind of like Olympus. This is where the Valar lived was a physical place. It was a continent on this flat earth and it was possible to physically go there. Just get in your ship and go. And it was at the, um, at some point, um, you know, I'm, I'm blanking right now and Tolkien fans are going to hate me. It was either at the end of the first age or the end of the second age. I think it was the end of the first age that the world transformed and, and Valinor separated. It became more like an Asgard or an Olympus that was, you couldn't get there unless, uh, you know, through any normal physical means it was separated from the world. And then the flat world became round. And, and the whole idea was that everything, this is all an ancient history of our own world. Yeah. Which explains when uh, in the Ring of Power, when they are selling before she jumps off the ship and kind of going into that, it, it's sort of had that Asgard-esque type feel to it. Right. Uh, like, this is how you have to cross over. So. Right. And, it, and at that point, it was still physically present in the world. You know, by the time of the Lord of the Rings, like you see uh, the hobbits getting on the ship and sailing away, um, that at that point, it exists like in a basically like in a different dimension. You can only only elves and those that that, that, that they grant the special privilege to are able to take the uh, the magical pathway that will get them to Valinor because it no longer existed on the planet. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So that, that, that makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. All right. Well, I think we could probably spend about 10 episodes on this and I'm sure that there are very, a lot of big Tolkien fans that are going to say, what about this? What about this? Listen, folks, you got something to say. You can uh, comment uh, on Instagram, (laughs) Facebook, uh, open the discussion up we don't care we know we're missing a lot and we're Uh, not there's there are so many epic stories packed into this the last 20 or 30 pages of the um of chapter 24 there the end of the the body of the book just those last 20 or 30 pages could probably be you know a dozen epic uh movies um there's there's just there's multiple wars of massive scale everything i mean there's so much here this is like i said this is like a this is like a concentrated form of a, of just about a dozen different epics. Yeah. 
And folks, for those of you that have not read this, um, listen, don't get intimidated. Take don't. like yeah. take like a month and just don't read anything else. Just do a chapter a day and you'll get through it. Listen to some podcasts, watch a few YouTube videos, read a few commentaries, and you'll begin to see it open up in a completely different way. I'm definitely going to reread it, just not right away. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, uh, I totally agree. Uh, I definitely will reread it sometime, probably in another year or so. I'll pull it off the shelf because there's other Tolkien I want to get to. I mean, yeah, and I'm going to be interested in your reaction to reading The Lord of the Rings again now that you have, now that you'll understand all the first age references. Yeah, yeah. I and I'm kind of excited about reading it, and I kind of want to go back and watch the uh, rewatch the extended edition. Um, yeah. You know, and, and watch those. Uh, th- those th- I've watched them all. I have HBO Max, and I've I've watched them all, and uh, they're all available on there. So I'm thinking about going back, and, and I'll go back and rewatch The Hobbit as well. Even though I I I have some conflicting opinions about the Hobbit trilogy, but you know, uh, yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> I I think it was more of a money grab at that point than it was storytelling, but um. That's just my opinion. So. Yeah, it's you know, I I I guess I'm grateful they exist. <laughs> I do have them. I watch them occasionally, but they are they are problematic. Whereas the the Lord of the Rings trilogy, um, I absolutely adore. Yeah, same, same. All right, well, folks, go check out David's books. We'll have links to his uh, books in the show notes on both Amazon and his website. Dave, man, I appreciate you coming back on, dude. Well, thank you very much. I had a blast. I uh, appreciate you letting me talk about it. And this is kind of random and non-related, but I, I do a little small little YouTube channel d- dealing with American soccer. If anyone who's a Major League Soccer fan or fan of the U.S. men's national team, you hear me on there chatting about it. It's all short form, no deep dives. It's on YouTube at American Soccer Quick Kicks. You can find me there, too. Excellent, excellent. And, uh, you know, here in uh, Oklahoma City area, we have the energy. Uh, so I've got a few games that, that, that they've done here. And so uh, awesome. I do have a lot of fans I know out there that are big World Cup and soccer fans. Or if you're over in the Europe area, football. And uh, so. Uh, yeah. I, I aim at the casual or the new fan, people that don't want to like spend a whole lot of time digging into every detail, but uh, are are curious enough or, or want to know enough just to keep in touch, just keep their finger on the pulse, know the broad strokes of what's going on. That's what I'm there for. All right. And Dave is very, very active on Twitter at Def Dave. Is that it? Is it just That's Def it. Dave? All right. Def at- Dave, I own it. All right. So he's active, very active over there. And obviously throwing a lot of, if you're a Gen X guy like me, I'm sort of the younger side of Gen X because I was born in 77. But it, uh, Dave throws a lot of fun stuff out there as far as activities on uh, just different 80s music, 90s music, different things from the Gen Xers all the way through the Beach Boys oh, even. Yeah. So oh, yeah. just That's my uh, biggest all- fandom, actually. Don't even get me started. We'll be here another hour. <laughs> all right man well i appreciate you coming on everybody this has been dave and jj this is geeky dads talking about geeky things that's a wrap